that you are being caressed, that you just do the hand movement like this and say, oh God, what is it that you might be teaching me out of uh, this experience that might somehow expose the true image of you inside of me? I gave a brief explanation, but I just want to say again, there is a passage of scripture that speaks a little bit about that. It is when the disciples got called to task for doing work on the Sabbath, and this is in Matthew 12 and in Mark chapter 2, where they were going through the fields on the Sabbath, the disciples got hungry, and they gathered some of the grain of the fields and ate, and they were critiqued for that. And just so you know, the criticism of the disciples was that they were working on the Sabbath. That's what the critique was, not that they were eating when they were hungry, and, and not that they were walking through a field. But when they took the stalks of the grain and grabbed them, what they would do is they would take those grains and right at the husk where the grain is, they would rub it between their hands and the stalk would fall off and the husk would begin to separate a little bit from the seeds or the grain that was inside the husk. So this is like a a miniature version of what we talked about last week with the large threshing floor and the animals walking across it and then the winnowing fork that gets it up in the air and blows the chaff away. This is a smaller version, and what the disciples had done was they had gathered, which is work. They had threshed, which is work. And when the things were falling apart, they would blow away the excess husk or chaff and that was winnowing, which is work, and they get critiqued for that. But part of the storyline of that is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That the law was put in place to help us to find that which is behind the law. The powerful message of redemption and reconciliation. The law came to show us that we are incapable of doing this on our own. And so we're invited into the place where Christ does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so it's not just about the radical disciples who are breaking all of the rules and come, let's join this revolutionary group that doesn't care about rules at all. The story tells us that this is the end of something, the beginning of something new. A way by which we look at this thread that goes through all of history and see in it something fresh, something life-giving, something eternal. So with that in mind, we now come to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 tells us this story about a wedding that's taking place. Now, I want to come back to this in a moment, but I just want to acknowledge so that you're kind of attuned to this, why we've jumped to John. This seems to be the next chronological thing that happens in the life of Jesus after the baptism that took place by John the Baptist with the voice from heaven that says, this is my son, in him I am so very pleased, that this wedding seems to be next. But we move to John because even though all four Gospels include a story about the baptism of Jesus, only two of the Gospels do 
speak about the nativity or the birth of Jesus, only one gospel has the story of the wedding at Cana, and that's John. So we go to this book and we begin to explore this wedding in a little town that's outside of Nazareth. I am told that it is possible from several spots in Nazareth to actually see the town of Cana. I don't get the impression that it's very large at all, a relatively small community, a community that in some ways is in the shadow of Nazareth, which itself is not all that large of a community, and didn't have the greatest of reputations. If you recall, when it was told that Jesus comes from Nazareth, the comment was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, apparently anything good that came out of Nazareth went to Cana, so The people have gathered in Cana for a wedding. And this wedding tells of a story that had disaster written all over it. It it is a disaster that happens behind the scenes but was about to become very public. It's a disaster because they were out of wine. Now, this has deep, deep significance, and it's difficult to maybe convey in any kind of modern telling of this story the kind of angst that might be in the midst of this. I mean, I I could try and give some examples. I've presided over many weddings. It's a real privilege to do that. But the focus of this really has to do with what we would reference more as the reception There wasn't quite the distinction that we have these days between the two. It was all considered part of the wedding celebration. This particular passage of Scripture tells us that it's on the third day. It's possible that that can mean one of two different things. It could mean that that it's on the third day of the week, and it was very typical for these, specifically these types of weddings that are referenced here in this passage, um, that they took place on Wednesday of the week. And so that would make sense that that could be a reference of what this is um, identifying. But it also is possible that it is referencing the third day of the wedding celebration because wedding celebration went for multiple days. In some cases, they were doing one a week. In a community that was driven by pretty hard labor and not a whole lot of celebration. When a wedding happens, it was worth stopping everything and to relish the celebration. There would be an extended partying and eating and drinking that helped mark this very, very important event. I can't imagine a week-long celebration. I've had the wonderful privilege of um, helping to plan and maybe in part fund um, two weddings within our family. And the planning that went into the few hours that we were together, the hours and days and checklists and to-do lists and follow-up lists and phone calls and visits and tastings and the list goes on and on, until we finally landed in the place that says, okay, we know all of the details, and we'll just have to stay on top of this to make sure it all comes together. 
And this all took place in one evening. I can't imagine planning this out for a week-long celebration. I have the privilege in those particular weddings to get a peek behind the curtains, to see what happens in the kitchen, to watch the workers try and pull off everything that we've tried to plan. I've watched as they've prepared things to bring out to the front and the rapid movement that goes down the hallways between the venue of where things are taking place and all the guests have gathered to all of the preparation that's going on and making sure that the guests have a wonderful evening and participate in a celebration that we all hope results in God's blessing and a long journey of two people who are starting a life together. It would be as if in those moments I'm standing back in the hallway watching those helpers come back and forth and one of them comes back with an empty tray and announces to all of the other workers, you have no more main course entrees. And if I'm the person overseeing this, my response would be, what do you mean you have no more main course entrees? We've gone over the guest list. We gave you the numbers a week in advance. You called us three days in advance for any changes. We went through all of the lists again and double-checked who was coming and who wasn't coming. How can we run out of main course? The response is, I don't know, but we can't even make it stretch because we gave the last of our main course, and only half the guests have been fed. And my next question would be, which half? Are these friends and family of the groom, and I have no credit with them, and this is going to be a difficult conversation, or is it all of the friends and family of the bride, and I have a little credit there, and I can help make this stretch? Which half hasn't been fed? The angst that comes with that, I'm feeling it right now, and I'm, it's not even true. We didn't run out, but I, I'm feeling what that would be like to try and walk out and have that conversation. So that's kind of the angst, but that still doesn't capture it. Because we miss something that's very important as part of the culture of the time. You see, the the beverage, the wine that was served, was an acknowledgement or an evidence of God's blessing. Wine was an evidence of a harvest. It was plentiful. An acknowledgement of God doing the things that only God can do. So those who plant the vineyards, those who tend to the vines, those who cultivate and prune back, all of that is work that the people can do. But the people can't send the rain. They can't make the sunshine. They can't determine how severe or mild the weather is going to be. All of that is completely dependent upon God. When the harvest comes, the giving of what the people have gathered, the the bringing of their offerings was a response to what they could not do, but God did. And a harvest came. So wine at a wedding was a pronouncement of God's blessing. May God's blessing pour over this couple and be with them for years to come. 
May God's evidence in their life show up again and again and again. So to run out of wine is this horrific omen that God's blessing will not extend over their whole kingdom. That God has not poured out on them. It is an omen of uncertainty. And so this carries with it not only this feeling of angst of how do I explain, but something that can't be explained, that is a cultural tradition of what this means. into this tense moment that I am guessing the guests are not yet aware of. Jesus' mother appears. And for the first time in the gospel, we see Jesus' mother mentioned. And in John, only mentioned one other time, and that's at the very end of the gospel at the foot of the cross. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But here we have Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to Jesus and says, you've got a problem. And in essence, she's saying, and I'm wanting this to be your problem. It's interesting that she's the one who steps in here. It could be that she just has a compassionate heart. We have some who have asserted that Jesus is actually related to a member of the bridal party. That her sister is possibly the mother of the groom. We don't have that in scriptural evidence, but we have other literature that um, proposes that that's a strong possibility given the characters of all of scripture. If that's the case, then I can see that mother coming to Mary and say, Mary, I need your help. Could you give oversight to this part of the wedding, this part of the celebration? I could really use you in a number of different ways. I'd love for you to be my right-hand person. Please help out. It would be great. I don't have anything to pay you, but, you know, we're related. So could you just step into this spot and do that? And Mary gladly doing so. And so when this becomes a problem, Mary's sense of responsibility steps in and says, I've got to handle it at this point. That's just conjecture. But we do know that she steps in and says to her son, Jesus, there's a problem. I, I need you to step in. Jesus' response is kind of odd. The response is, um, wh why are you asking me to do this? My hour has not yet come. Jesus uses this language numerous times throughout the Gospel of John, probably about a dozen times. And the hour seems to refer to that hour of culmination for which he believes his entire life is directed. The culmination of crucifixion and resurrection. My hour has not yet come. We find toward the end of the Gospel where he says just the opposite. My hour has come. So this language is used by John, the Gospel writer, throughout this particular Gospel to speak toward a very important moment in time. It's almost a, a flag for the reader. Pay attention. Timing's everything. A and the timing of what's about to take place, oh, don't miss this. This is a really big deal. And Jesus is responding, that time, my hour has not yet come, but apparently 
his time has come to begin this ministry, to begin this conflict with powers that be, to begin this segment of his journey with his disciples and his family and interacting with those who are in power. Mary's response in this moment is so great. It's almost as if she doesn't hear what he says because she looks at the servants and she says, so, do whatever he says. That's it. His response is, my hour has not come. It's almost as if she doesn't hear that at all. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus says to the servants, fill up the jars with water. The purification jar says in our particular rendition that they were made of stone. Um, They carry about 20 to 30 gallons of water used for purification. They uh, are used to clean the feet of travelers who have come, rinse their feet off as they gather dust from their travels. They are used to clean hands before eating and even to clean hands in between courses of dining. You wouldn't put your hands into these jars. You wouldn't put your feet into these jars. There would be an instrument that would take the water out and put it into something else that could be poured over your feet or poured over your hands. They're certainly large, certainly cumbersome. For him to say to the servants, fill them up, is not an easy task. It's not like pulling a hose over and just filling them up with a hose. These are heavy, empty, and incredibly heavy with 25 gallons in them. This is a major task. So it seems like we go from one verse to the next, but this would be a major ordeal while the guests are all hovering around. This party that I referenced, if it's one of those who was ex- that was extended, the celebration happens, the, the ceremony itself where they are united through a beautiful covenant and ritual, just like we have beautiful words that are used to unite two people together. Part of the journey following that is that the bride and groom are carried around the town or walk around the town along with the bridal party to tell everybody the good news that the wedding has taken place. They don't take off out of town. They stay in town because throughout the next few days, others gather in in the celebration. We're not exactly sure at what point in the celebration we are in this part of the story. But we do know that after it has been filled with water, Jesus says to one of the students, draw up some of what's in there and take it to the steward, the person who's in charge, the one who's checking on all the food, the one who is responsible for making sure this comes off well. The high-level wedding service. And he tastes it, and he's disgusted. He says, I I don't understand. Everybody I know, every wedding I've ever done, they bring out the best wine at the beginning. And once people have had a whole lot, and they don't care about anything, 
we bring out the worst stuff, the watered-down stuff, the stuff that really nobody knows what they're drinking. And here, this is the finest stuff I've ever tasted. Wow. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but did you know that there are online wine calculators that can tell you how much you're going to need at a given party? You just have to punch in a few words, and up comes a calculator. I didn't know this. I we didn't have it at our wedding. I, I've never needed a calculator, but I came to the w- Cana wedding, and I thought, I want to know how much wine is here. And I want to know how many guests this is going to take care of. They have it online. All you do is just plug in a couple numbers. Some of you already know this, but many of you don't. So I'm filling you in. You fill in the number of guests. That's important. The next, you fill in how many hours is the reception or the party. Because it makes a difference. I changed the calculation. Two hours is dramatically different than seven hours. The next thing you have to fill in is, are there any other beverages that are being served? And then finally, tell me a little bit about the type of guests you're inviting. How much do they drink? You plug all of that in, and it kicks out the exact amount that you're going to need. So, if you plug in 100 guests, it would be a pretty big crowd in Cana, I would imagine. Seven hours. Moderate drinkers. You need about 15 gallons of wine. 15 gallons. Would Jesus change the water into wine? about 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Is this a story about just making sure there's enough wine at a wedding? I don't think that's all it is, if that's what it is about. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the story and see if there are some pieces that might give us another clue into what the writer is trying to communicate to us. You know probably that John's a very unique writer in relationship to the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They follow kind of a similar storyline and a similar way by which they depict the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection. John seems to take a very different approach. His gospel doesn't read like the other three, doesn't have the same kind of parallel stories. This is one of those examples where the story of Cana is unique to John's telling. John's gospel starts in a very unique way as well. It starts off by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The similarity between this and the Jewish scriptures that were held so dear to us 
the opening line of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, God spoke the words, let there be light. John speaking, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And Genesis saying, in the beginning, God. Then God spoke. John is writing to an audience to draw in to say, do you understand that everything from the very beginning points toward the hour, the time? Pay attention. What I'm about to tell you is a storyline that marks such a significant hour in our journey. I don't want you to miss this. And so, just like his story begins, his gospel begins with this powerful reference to the Old Testament, is it possible, I'm going to propose to you some of the beautiful imagery seen here, that they might reference If there was only one that stood out, I would probably say, yeah, maybe I'm stretching, maybe you're stretching to try and make this connection. But the fact that so many of the pieces of this story have such beautiful connections to the storyline of faith. Six days of creation in Genesis. Six days where the universe was formed. Six eras in time where things unfolded and came together. But at the end of six the sacred days, the Sabbaths of rest, the day of our Lord, the completion, the recognition of all that has been, but the acknowledgement that now it is complete. Six jars of water, maybe coincidence, Maybe there just happened to be six there. But maybe this marks the movement from what has been to what is already here. The fulfillment, the completion. The movement from the waters of purification, the law, to grace. The movement from the waters that represent our effort to comply, to to fulfill the law, to do all of the things that we ought to do to try and earn God's approval, never quite making it. The sacrifices go on and on and on because we never quite attain that which we've been called to do because we were never intended to be able to do that on our own. It's only through the incredible gift of God in Christ. And so the movement from the ritual of purification to the wine of blessing. The movement from the law to love. The movement from always striving to freedom from guilt. This story also, as I said earlier, 
brings up certain characters. Not very many, but several. Mary is introduced, but is it possible that Mary also introduces for us the notion of her representing all of Israel? Out of that long, beautiful Jewish tradition of faith and works, through Mary comes that which is new and redeeming and justifying and hopeful. Out of Israel comes that which is a representation of God's gift of grace. A new understanding of faith, a new direction in how we live out our life. The only other time we find Mary mentioned in this gospel, as I said, was at the foot of the cross. And there's where Jesus says to the disciple whom he loves, this is your mother. This is your son. Take her into your home so that she might always be cared for. That that from which faith comes is taken in to those who follow his disciples and cared for as part of the rich heritage of the journey of faith. They're the ones who get to see what happens here. It appears as if they're the only ones who get to see this. I don't know if the disciples got the, the full experience. I'm, I'm guessing that eventually the bride and groom were filled in on how this happened. Maybe that's how we have it to this day is because the bride and groom find out. We don't even know who the bride and groom are. We're in kind of a no-name town with bride and grooms who literally have no names in the story. The people who get to see this incredible work are the servants. And I'm wondering what's that like, what that is like. I, I, I don't know if they all kind of fell in step when Jesus says, just do whatever he says in referencing to Jesus. But apparently it was filled to the brim, and they watched as a ladle was taken to the head steward. And he drinks it, and he goes, wow, this is fantastic. I don't know if they're nudging each other and saying, does he know, does he think it's right? What's going on here? And then I wonder if one of them looked in or dipped a finger in or what. But they're watching something that defies explanation. I doubt the guests knew anything was going on because they just started spreading the news that we have 150 gallons that somebody's got to drink. And the servants watch this take place. What a story to go home and tell to someone believe this wedding I'm going to. I've been to a lot of weddings. I will never forget this wedding. There was some really good dancing. There was some, some good food, but let me fill you in on what happened with what we were drinking. I know we were serving it, but every once in a while, they let the servants have a little bit of this just to keep us going. It's part of our pay. Unbelievable. What a story to tell. And when they say, how much did you say you had? Six 
of those stone jars? 150 gallons? That's enough for the whole town. If you're missing here the extravagance of the kingdom, I think you're missing almost the whole story. There is more grace than you could ever imagine. This celebration is over you. So the imagery of the bride and groom, who in Scripture is the bridegroom? Jesus. And the bride? The followers, the disciples, the church. This celebration is over you. The Father dances over you. I'm looking at this crowd right now and I'm wondering why. You don't look very excited about that. (laughs) The Father celebrates you. This Cana celebration is a celebration over the grace that overrides any guilt you ever had. It's about forgiveness that goes beyond any sin or trespass you think you've committed. This is about God's love pushing past every prejudice, every bias, every misstep, everything that clouds your heart. It is no longer about you trying to figure out how to purify yourself, cleanse your hands and your feet when your heart's not cleansed to the place where the wine comes with God's blessing and says, I'm the one who abides within and cleanses you from the inside out. This is part of the very beginning of all things and extends through all eternity. This is the message and the hour that's for you. Last week we talked about what happens when we face the circumstances where threshing seems to leave us in a place where we're torn up. This week we move to a wedding celebration that is the wedding between the creator of all things, the redeemer of the world, and the bride. And I don't think you get this, but it's you. God's grace so extravagant that it extends to everyone you see. There's enough for all. It's the best. The other stuff, yeah, there may have been some good things, but the best message is the one John is trying to get us to receive. And it is not only are you invited to this wedding, but this wedding celebration is all about. It is God's blessing in abundance for which there is no shortage. It won't run out. There's no coming up short halfway through the process. It is drinking out of the excess of abundance of a God who knows no limit or end to the extent that he will pursue you with love and abundance. Don't miss the message. I just have the feeling that your toe's not just tapping. 
but you're already in the midst of dancing at the celebration. And Lord, it is so awkward sometimes to come in late and see somebody dancing and wondering if this is an embarrassing moment, an awkward moment. But Lord, touch our glance this morning. Smile in our direction. Invite us onto the floor. Take us by the hand and let the music begin to move up in rhythm and in harmony with you. We know you are the one who has led the way. Help us to be like the servants. Help us listen to Mary's words that simply say, do it again. Help us to let go of the many things we have tried. Help us to be like Mary and go to you first. Not work so hard to fix everything under the sun, but go to you with all of our resources, all of who we are, and just say, Lord, abundance that comes through generous living, the hope that comes through humble living. Help us to set aside our arrogance and embrace your trustworthiness. Help us this morning to let go of our guilt and embrace your love. Help us to let go chains that have held us captive and help us to step into your freedom. Oh Lord, this morning, help us to dance and celebrate. I'm going to ask you to stand. Oh God, we thank you for who you are. There is no one like you, God. We are amazed by your love and by your Yes, Lord, that we may respond by giving to others what you have so freely given to us.
best we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live. 